If you have a Bible, you can open to the Song of Songs. We'll look at all of chapter 4 today and the first verse of chapter 5. And uh, sorry, it's not printed in the bulletin for you. Song 4 and the beginning of 5. So this morning, um, I don't know if you looked ahead at all uh, at this text, uh, saw what it was um, saying. Uh, We've got probably what is the raciest passage in the Bible, the raciest passage in the song itself. Uh, Apparently, this kind of poetry, uh, racy poetry, is in no way irreverent. The fact that it appears here, uh, this, this is the most reverent of songs. That's what the song of songs means. This is the holiest song. This is the godliest song. Uh, so the, the racy passage that we have in front of us, there's something good about it, right? There's something uh, holy and reverent and, and right about it. This is revelation. This is wisdom. This is beauty for the soul's feasting. And remember, it is poetry, right? It's poetry. This is not pornography. This is not some uh, steamy account of a a rendezvous. It's not a record of uh, sexual interaction. It's not that. It's poetry, right? It's divinely crafted poetry. It's theological poetry. It's spiritual poetry. Fundamentally and uniquely, it teaches us about God. It teaches us about Jesus Christ about our relationship to him, or else it would not appear in the Christian scriptures. Right? So uh, every person in the world should give his or her rapt attention to this as to the very word of God, because it's what it is. So let me pray, and then we'll read the word of God. <clears throat> Father, we do need your help this morning as we consider this word. Um, there are a lot of barriers in our hearts and in our minds Each one of us probably comes with some form of resistance to even uh, listening to this text, to even reading it, uh, let alone entering into it and discovering the depths of it and what it means for our relationship with you. We pray that you would overcome the obstacles in our hearts, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, enter into our lives, change us from the inside out, make make us able to receive this word with gladness. Transform us into the likeness of Christ as we hear it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of them all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Senir and Hermon, 
from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. She says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. He says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'm already sweating. (laughs) Did that make you uncomfortable? (laughs) That is to be expected, but but we should wonder why. We should wonder why we're uncomfortable. We have a, this is why, we may not like it, we have a real problem with intimacy. We have a real problem with, with true intimacy, universally, not just in our culture, not just as a subculture, uh, not, just, not just in the church, but universally, as, a, as an entire race after the fall, we have a problem with intimacy. We try to avoid it, just like we try to avoid God. We don't want to be known. Not on this kind of level. We don't want to be known like that. Um, uh, Joe, Pope, Joe Pope often uh, says a good definition for intimacy is into me, see. Right? Uh, it's a good little trick to remember what it really is about. You're, you're getting to know me, and I'm getting to know you when we mutually enter into uh, a deep intimacy. Right? But we don't want to be known. In the garden... Genesis 3, in the garden, because of our suspicion of the God of love, Adam and his wife went from being naked and not ashamed, so they had pure intimacy, they went from being naked and not ashamed to naked and ashamed, and then they went to hiding to cover their nakedness in order to try not to be ashamed anymore. They hid from intimacy as those who could no longer bear it. They cut themselves off from the searching love of God. And in doing so, humanity abdicated its divinely granted privilege. This whole world was intended to be, in a sense, a bridal chamber. That's the divinely granted privilege that we have as, as people made in God's image for a relationship, for communion, for intimacy with God, is that this whole world was meant to be 
uh, bridal chamber in our relationship with God. The God of love, the triune God, he made us for union with himself. And he gave us the whole world as a gift, the whole world to be a house and a home for our communion with him. Humanity was meant to cultivate the Garden of Eden. They were placed in this garden, and they were instructed to cultivate it until the, the, uh, the whole earth was uh, filled with the glory of this kind of a garden, and until it spread and filled the whole earth, a, a glorious cosmic temple, right? the bride, uh, bridal chamber, bridal suite. It was supposed to cover the whole earth, a glorious cosmic temple, the place where God would dwell with those who were made in his image. So the whole world, the whole world was meant to be a world of love, right? a world filled with staggering things and delicate things and nourishing things and colorful things and delicious things, simple things and fragrant things. Strong things and supple things and surprising things and melodious things and living things. The whole world was meant to be a world of love filled with things like this, a world that, that begins to display the creative, generous love of its maker. Just begins. A world for the great bridegroom and for his precious bride to enjoy together. A physical, material, tangible world. A place for our spiritual union, for eternal life, for knowing God and being known by him utterly. This place. Ancient uh, Gnosticism and much popular Religion and philosophy today, and even uh, streams of thought in the church, claim that the physical world, the material world, the tangible world, is bad. And that salvation looks like an escape from it. It looks like a denial of our physicality. right? And, uh, and it looks like deliverance into the pure realm of the spiritual. Um, But contrary to that, the Bible everywhere insists that the material world, including our bodies, including our physical interactions, is good and very good. We are material beings. We are what we are. And the world is what it is. It's material. It's physical. It's tangible. It's made of the stuff that God made it of. And this is all according to the will of the one who made us and all things. And he wanted it. And when he saw it, he said it was good and very good. And we were made to have relationship with God, to receive God, and to give ourselves to God mutually and freely and delightedly and bodily and absolutely in every way in the realm of nature as it is cultivated into a holy temple, a great holy bridal chamber. We were made for our love, for our divine intimacy, that great privilege that we've been given. Uh, We were made for that to encompass all creation, to enfold all creation, to enjoy all creation in our love with God. 
and we traded it all for one piece of fruit that we thought would be good for us. Consorted with his enemy. We doubted his goodness and his generosity. We rejected his word and his gift, the whole world. We rejected our very selves as, as those made in God's image. And so we should be ashamed of ourselves. And we are. Because we ourselves are the source of our shame. There is something wrong with us that we can't fix. There's something wrong with us. We can sense it, even if we can't articulate it. Our whole lives are spent trying to fix it or trying to cover up what's wrong. We feel that intimacy, that thing that we were made for, intimacy is dangerous because we anticipate rejection, because we've rejected ourselves. There's something wrong with us. Uh, we reject ourselves, surely others will too. All right. What would happen if we opened up our souls to God, really opened up our souls to him and, and to others? What would happen if we really let someone all the way in? We suspect it would be bad. We suspect it would be bad. We're afraid of it, so we avoid it. We avoid intimacy, and that's a big problem for people who are made for intimacy. The problem is most poignant and it's most painful in our sexuality. Right? As we were created, male and female, to be mutually interdependent, not one of us is whole in and of ourselves. Married, unmarried, young, old, it doesn't matter. We were made to be mutually interdependent in our humanity, in our sexuality, and ultimately that's reflective of our, our dependence on God. We were meant to be naked and not ashamed, right? to really know and be known, and for there to be nothing wrong with that. We were made for that, to reflect the glorious intimacy of the God of love, yet we've rejected our created purpose and our privilege. So intimacy, we can't live with it, and we can't live without it. So we distort everything. We distort our sexuality in our self-centered, uh, self-protective ways. We evacuate sexuality of its divine significance. We make it about mere biological urges. We look for pleasure in our sexuality without the risk of whole person, whole being vulnerability. Pleasure without the risk of intimacy. We objectify each other. Turn other people into objects in an effort to remain hidden from each other, to try to be naked and not ashamed. Or we just try to not be naked, right? not be vulnerable, we try to, keep, to, to avoid the topic of human sexuality or intimacy altogether, just never expose ourselves, never make ourselves vulnerable and open to real intimacy, never be truly naked so that we wouldn't experience the shame. Married people do this just as well as single people. Uh, even in the church, such intimacy is so difficult for us that many Christians throughout history have 
almost instinctively viewed sex as just a necessary evil. Um, We start to fidget and squirm when we see a passionate love scene in a film. Uh, We even resist portrayals of intimacy like we have here in the Bible. We resist portrayals in the Bible of the intimacy that we were made for with God. We resist imagining ourselves in such intimate relationships. We resist entering vicariously into the beloved's place in this evocative poetry. We're afraid of the passions of being known and knowing the other. Because these things are beyond our control. It could be a terrifying prospect to find yourself at the mercy of God, standing before his clear and searching sight when you're expecting rejection. But this is the wonder of the gospel. As we hear it in the language of the Song of Songs, God knows you inside and out. He looks you up and down. And he declares, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. There's no flaw in you. That's what Paul means in Ephesians 5 when he says that Christ loved the church cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to himself the church in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ says it to us, and it becomes true of us. There's no flaw in you, my love. His word to us is one of intimate celebration. It's not just a word, it's a song. It's divine poetry. It's divine singing. The prophet Zephaniah says in chapter 3, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So as the bridegroom celebrates the ravishing beauty of his bride here, so God, by sheer grace, sets his love upon you with singing. In spite of the fact that we all, that, that you, each one of you, in spite of the fact that you've turned down his advances, You've resisted and fled from intimacy with him. You've renounced the divinely granted privilege of communion with him. He sent his world, in spite of it all, uh, he sent his son into the world to embrace and to retrieve you, to bring you back to himself, to the bridal chamber. The Son of God united himself to humanity when he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus of Nazareth, John says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The dwelling place. The dwelling place of God is with man in the person of Jesus Christ. In his person is the renewal of all things. It's the new creation. It's the world the way it was meant to be. A glorious garden temple. When he takes his bride to himself, that's the promised land. When he takes his bride to himself, that's the new Eden. That's the the cosmic temple, the cosmic bridal chamber. 
That's the new heavens and the new earth in the bridegroom's union with his bride. And the metaphors and the similes that we see in our passage, they're not just ancient cultural expressions that seem really foreign to us until you really learn how to appreciate goats and pomegranates, right? It's not just that. This is biblical language of, of a world of love. This is biblical language of the restoration of Eden. The journey from the wilderness to the promised land. That's what this is language of. I can't explain anywhere near all of the references in this uh, passage, but here are several of them. Verse 1, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the, the slopes of Gilead. He's more than just saying you have full black curly tresses in some really strange way, right? More than that, Gilead is a place. It's a place, right? It's a real place. You see words like that, just prone to pass over it. I know, where is Gilead? It was the entrance to the promised land, right? For the, the people of Israel, their wanderings in the wilderness they ended up there right before entering into the promised land. The rich land, it's on the east side of the Jordan, where in fact some of the tribes settled. Right? The land was pleasant enough to them. They said, we'll just stake out here as the rest of uh, Israel went in to take possession of their inheritance, their privileged inheritance. Right? So it's, um, it's a picture of, uh, of goats just, uh, just life leaping down from Gilead into the promised land. Right? It's, a, it's a beautiful picture, and it's a picture of hope. Your teeth are a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. So it's more than just saying your teeth are, are really bright white and you have a full set, which is remarkable in the ancient world, uh, those, those two things, but it's more than that. It's more than that. It reminds us of the great shepherd Jacob. The language appears in, uh, in Genesis 32. Um, the great shepherd Jacob, who would be renamed Israel. He's one of the fathers of the people of God, one of the, the fathers of the redeemed. And he was skilled at tending the flocks so that none of the ewes miscarried under his watch this great shepherd, he was able to bring life into the world in spite of the curse of death that lay upon it. And that's beautiful. And that's hopeful. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. It's more than just saying, have you been eating red berries? That looks kind of tasty. Let me get that for you. Uh, they didn't have lipstick. I don't, I don't know. Um, it's more than that. It's saying... The one other place in the Bible where you see a scarlet thread, I'm sure now that you've already thought of it, is in the story of Rahab in, in Jericho, Joshua 2, when God's people are entering into the promised land and they encounter this harlot who would be forgiven because of her faith, her allegiance to God, her faithfulness to him and to his people. It would be her salvation, and it would be her glory as she was incorporated into the the Davidic line, the line of Jesus Christ himself. 
And that's beautiful. And that's hopeful for us. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. So it's, it's more than just you're a strong, proud, fierce-looking woman, you know. It's more than that. David, David was the warrior king. The warrior poet whose descendant, his greater son, would, would rule, he would sit on an everlasting throne and all of his enemies would fall before him by God's own power, and it would bring peace, and it would bring security. He's a strong tower, and the righteous run into him and are saved. It would bring rest from enemies. It would bring prosperity to God's people, this greater Davidic king, this great warrior king. Verse 6, talking about myrrh and frankincense. These are aromatic spices that, strangely, in the Bible are associated both with love and with death. They're given to Christ as gifts at his birth. Remember at this time of year, the Magi bringing him the gifts, and he was buried in about 75 pounds of these spices in the tomb. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Depart from the peaks of those mountains, from the dens of lions, the mountains of leopards. Come away from your inaccessibility. Come into true intimacy. Come down into the promised land. Because our love is the promised land. You've captivated my heart. How beautiful is your love. It's better than wine. When you give yourself to me, It is intoxicating. It's beautiful. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Our sweet communion, it's the land flowing with milk and honey. It's the promised land. Our sweet communion. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. This is the imagery of Eden. A locked garden, the Lord's private garden. Walled Park, where once he dwelt with humanity in the midst of all good things in the time of innocence, in in the time of the, the, the virginity of humanity. It's the place where God communes with humanity in intimacy. And where that is, where God communes with his people in intimacy, that is paradise. It's the locked garden unlocked to us. Access to the Holy of Holies through the veil of Christ's own flesh. Your shoots are an orchard. Literally, that word is paradise. Your shoots are a paradise of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Pomegranates. At the entrance of the the great temple that was built by Solomon... The temple that symbolized the pure communion of Eden, the the virginal intimacy of that place in the layout, the the structure of the place and the decorations everywhere are pictures that remind you of, of Eden, 
of being in God's presence, as it's the place where people met with God, this temple built by Solomon, at the entrance of it were two pillars, two great pillars made of bronze, and there was lattice work between them. It's like you're entering in uh, through a forest, 400 pomegranates, bronze pomegranates at the entrance to the temple. Paradise and orchard. So as you pass into the place where God's presence dwells, you are reminded of all the fruitfulness of a world of love. A world set back right. Things being the way that they're supposed to be. No more thorns and thistles. Verse 15, a garden fountain, a well of living water. Where God communes with humanity and intimacy, that's a garden fountain. It's a well, it's a river of water of life. The river of life flowing out of the temple, flowing out of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, like Dave Dave read in our uh, New Testament reading from Revelation 22. Jesus says this in John 7, and this is a quote also printed on the front page of the bulletin for you. He's at a feast, and this language is very... uh, eschatological, if you will, very high language. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart. And that word is not the usual word for heart. It's usually translated um, womb. Out of his heart, out of his belly, out of his womb will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So those who commune with Christ by faith, who call upon his name, who believe in him, have Christ's own living Spirit put inside of them. We are the bride of Christ. We are the church We are the new Eve to his new Adam. Just as the first Eve was called the mother of all living, even more so, we who are united to Jesus Christ, we bring life and healing to the nations. The rivers of the water of life are flowing out of us because we have the Spirit, because of our union with the great bridegroom. These rivers flow from our communion with him. Just as rivers flowed from the garden. Just as rivers flowed from the temple in Ezekiel's imagery of it. From the holy city, the new Jerusalem in Revelation 22. So this is what Paul Griffiths has to say. This is part of the ordinary dynamic exchange of love. When you are given the gift of being delighted in, you're made new by it. You're transfigured in its light. You become capable by way of this gift capable of offering it to others, of taking delight in them. Becoming a beloved makes possible being a lover. You must discipline yourself in your reading of the Song of Songs toward an understanding that you participate in the song's beloved, that her constitution as a beloved is also yours, and that you, like her, are being made capable of being a lover in your turn by the Lord's gaze of appreciative delight directed at you. 
So the bridegroom says, Awake, O north wind. Cool, refreshing, stimulating breeze. And come, O south wind. Warm, pleasant, aromatic, comfortable wind. Blow upon my garden and let its spices flow. Stir up love until the the scent, the aroma of these spices covers the whole earth. He calls us to divine intimacy with him for the renewal of the world. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our children knew themselves to be in the place of the beloved here? If our children grew up knowing themselves to be beloved, to be participants in passionate, deep, sweet communion with God so that they grow up truly loving others instead of objectifying them and using them for their own pleasure. Wouldn't that be good? Wouldn't it be sweet to know God's love for you in such a way that you're able to be vulnerable with others and yet not ashamed so that others could also know the renewing love of the Lord and enter into the promised land of his delight? Wouldn't it be glorious to be free of this world's distortions of intimacy, to be free of this world's abuses of intimacy, to dwell with God in the divine bridal chamber of this world of love, a world that's set back right in Jesus Christ, with ultimate reference to Jesus Christ. He beckons you to all of this. He beckons you, he says, come down from those inaccessible mountains and meet with me in the promised land. He beckons you toward it in relationship with him. Not that it will be perfectly experienced now or constantly experienced now, but truly tasted this this sweet communion until the last day, the great day, the wedding feast, when he carries us across the threshold of eternity into the new heavens and the new earth where everything is set back right, a world of love. And uh, in response to his beckoning, She says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Opening up to him, opening up to him is the restoration of Eden. It's the return to the intimacy for which we were created. And so he said, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk, and others celebrate and encourage them and say, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. So opening yourself to Jesus Christ by faith, receiving his spirit of love, it's a delight to him. He enjoys his promised land in his bride. He sees it in his bride, and he wants it. In his bride, and he delights as he partakes of it in communion with his bride. God is the one singing here in celebration in his relationship with his beloved bride. So, in union with Christ, you stand before God fully known and yet accepted, naked and not ashamed. And in this is such great freedom, such great security. Such great joy that life in Jesus Christ, eternal life, can be compared 
to being drunk with love. Walker Percy said, uh, Love in the ruins. We love those who know the worst of us and don't turn their faces away. His is the kind of love. He didn't turn his face away from us in Jesus Christ. He looked us up and down and he called us his beloved. And his is the kind of love that thrills us at the thought of a return to intimacy, a return to the divine privilege for which we were created if we're willing, willing to let him look at us and if we're willing to look at him by faith. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, the place where you dwell with your people. My soul longs, yet, yes, it, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the desolate valley, they make it a place of springs. Father, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to open ourselves to your clear and searching sight, to open ourselves to your love that is declared to us by your grace through Jesus Christ. Help us to open ourselves to true intimacy with you for the sake of the renewal of this world, to set all things back right uh, in, in our relationships. Would you give us a taste of Eden, a taste of the cosmic garden temple, a taste of the new heavens and the new earth? as we dwell together with you through sweet communion with you through Christ, and as we carry this, this kind of intimacy about with us, this kind of vulnerability and openness, uh, being naked and not ashamed, as we carry that into our relationships, uh, all of them, so that people would know that it is safe and good and pleasant and delightful to stand before you and hear you say, you are altogether lovely. There is no flaw in you. Not because of us do you say this, but because of your son Jesus and because of your great love with which you've loved us. So we pray that you would transform us by that love into the, uh, the likeness of Christ himself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.